This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen and I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University Chicago. I'm here with my friend Heidi Schlumpf. She's executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter and my friend Father Dan Haran. He's director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. I'm glad to be with you both. Father Dan, how have you been? Hey, David. Heidi, great to be with you, as always. I'm well. It's We're really busy in that typical five-going-on-six-week mark in the semester, so midterms are coming around, things are hopping, and God willing, the pandemic is hopefully leveling and maybe decreasing a bit. Along those lines, I've been doing some more in-person events that we've been moving from digital or virtual back to in-person and so, yeah, that's what I've been up to. I gave a lecture at Chaminade University in Honolulu, Hawaii last week, which was a, a delight. The Marinus community there is fantastic. The president there, the whole staff, the faculty, the students, they're just wonderful. So a shout out to them. And I think my lecture, if people are interested, is recorded on their YouTube, so you can look it up there. But Heidi, how have you been? What are you up to? Ooh, aloha, Daniel. I'm je <laughs> jealous that you get to go to Hawaii. My work-related travel has been uh, shelved in that a number of events have been moving to virtual events just out of an abundance of caution, I would suppose. But yeah, it's fall here in Chicago. The kids are settled into their school routines. We've had a few COVID cases in their schools, but so far my kids have not had to be home from school. I do have a family trip planned this weekend. We're going to Iowa for a family reunion on my husband's side, and then I'll be heading up to Madison, Wisconsin, where my brother-in-law will be having a belated inauguration as president of Edgewood College. So shout out to the Cincinnati Dominicans there. Hope to see some of you. How about you, David? How are you doing? Doing well. We had a socially distanced visit with a dear family friend from graduate school this weekend, and that was wonderful, a chance to catch up with our past in Nashville, my wife and I. And then also yesterday, I managed to finish the revisions on yet another chapter in the book, which I'm happy about to report that that is continuing to make progress. So I've got one book called The Covert Magisterium, which is moving through the editorial process at one publisher. And then I'm in the revisions for this particular book, The Accessorized Bible with Yale University Press. So I'm just happy that things are moving because I want to get all this off the plate so I can start on my biography of the Old Testament theologian, Walter Brueggemann. So all these things are good. Teaching is good. It's just, you know, we're in the thick of the semester and things are very busy. <laughs> so, but I'm also wanting to make sure that people are aware that we, the three of us, have an event coming up. If you're listening to this the day that this episode releases, which is Wednesday, October 6th, if you have a chance, please join us for an event that is being put on in conjunction with Commonweal Magazine and the Bernadin Center at Catholic Theological Union. It's called An Evening with the Francis Effect, and it's the three of us on uh, a Zoom call with 
participants and the ability to answer questions and and have a a back and forth. That'll be this Wednesday, October 6th at 5.30 p.m. Central Time, so 6.30 Eastern Time, and we'll make sure that the link to that and information on how to get involved in that is in the show notes for our episode, like I say, if you're listening on that Wednesday when this drops. Other things that are happening, Dan, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your trip to Hawaii. (laughs) Sure. I gave the Marinus Lecture, which is an annual lecture, and it was well attended. It was hybrid, so there were people there. Hawaii has some uh, fairly strict COVID-19 restrictions, as you might imagine, being an an island uh, location. They're very concerned about that, as they would be in ordinary times with like agricultural concerns and the rest. Incredibly warm hospitality that matches the warm weather. And then, yeah, I, I... I'm not sure what else to say. It's been a bit of a whirlwind because I came back from Honolulu after just a wonderful experience there and was in South Bend for about 12 hours before I had to go to a board of trustees meeting for St. Bonaventure University in Western New York. So that was our first in-person meeting in 19 months. And it just was extraordinarily refreshing to see my colleagues and friends in person, to see students on campus, to see faculty. It was wonderful. So you know, we're not out of the woods yet with, with this pandemic, but it is, it's hopeful that we might be getting there. I just, you know, I just wish more people would, who are eligible and, and medically able would get the vaccine. I mean, that's how we are going to get out of this period. And have you been to Hawaii before and did you get a chance to sightsee at all? Yeah, I had several, many years ago now, actually, I was there for a, a brief time to visit And this time around, I did get some sightseeing. I serve on another board of trustees, and that meeting coincided with the first two days that I was in Honolulu. So actually, very unglamorously, I was in my guest room at the Marinus residence on Zoom for six hours one morning and three hours the next morning uh, because they were all meeting in person in San Diego. So I was the guy who was was calling in. You know, they didn't feel bad for me because I was calling in from Hawaii. But nevertheless, it was uh, less of the kind kind of paradise that people might imagine. It was just a Zoom talk. But on the second afternoon, one of the brothers, Brother Dennis Schmidt, who's who, Schmitz, who's just a wonderful guy and a great host, took me on his very famous island tour. So we went up the east coast of, of the island and up to the North Shore. That's where all the surfing is. I did not surf, but then came back down through the, the plateau between the two sort of mountain ranges in the, in, in, on the island. And that was lovely. It was absolutely beautiful. And then Saturday, I met up with a graduate school friend of mine who's been out there for about eight years teaching and, and spent some time with her and her boyfriend and met up with uh, a couple of their friends as well. So it was nice to make those connections in addition to the public lecture and some events around that, as well as meetings with students and meetings with faculty, kind of seminars, that kind of stuff. So all around, just really a great experience. And so I, I can't speak highly enough about, about Chaminade University and especially the Marinus community that was so hospitable to their, their brother Franciscan here. You're making me realize how much I miss travel because the idea of doing a little tourism around Hawaii or even going for a lecture or to meet with students sounds really awesome. So I'll just live vicariously through you for a while, Dan. It is. Although on my way back from the Buffalo airport from Western New York after the board meeting this weekend, there was a bunch of wet weather from the Midwest all the way to the East Coast. And so one thing I had had forgotten about is how stressful it can be for everyone when flights get delayed and get canceled and this, that, and the other. But I made it back safely and, and I'm here to tell the story. So yeah. So thank you. Thanks, David, for asking about that. I encourage anybody who's able to go to, to go and or at least to, to look up, you know, Chaminade University and to see the great work that that it's the only Catholic university in Hawaii. And it's the only Catholic university between the West Coast of the mainland of the United States and East Asia, you know, by this, you have to get to basically the Philippines before you hit another one. So it's an important place out there. Well, and like Heidi, I'm grateful for you to tell us about it because it's a chance for me to live vicariously. And I'm just glad that you had safe travels. And it's good to hear about other places, even if we don't always have the chance to go to those other places. This might be a good time for us to pivot and just tell folks what you're about to hear on the program. Today, we're going to be talking about the Pope's recent comments on EWTN. We're going to be talking about some recent religious speech cases that have been coming through the Supreme Court and other courts and what that might mean for the landscape 
Escape of Religious Freedom, and we're going to do a pop culture roundup at the end of the show. And so that's what's coming up here on The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlump. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. You may recall that in the last episode of this podcast, our guest, NCR's own Vatican correspondent, Christopher White, gave us insights from the Pope's trip to Hungary and Slovakia in mid-September. That was before we learned about a part of the Pope's trip that hadn't been public, a meeting with fellow Jesuits in Slovakia. Pope Francis's remarks from that meeting were published later, and as is often the case, the quotable Pope made headlines, this time for a comment about his critics. The Pope said that while he may be worthy of criticism because he, as an individual, is a sinner like us all, the Church does not deserve attacks, such as those made by, quote, a large television channel that has no hesitation in continually speaking ill of the Pope, end quote. Now, most folks took that to mean the Eternal Word Television Network, or better known, EWTN, which is the largest Catholic media enterprise in the world and which is regularly critical of Pope Francis, especially on its news and commentary programs. EWTN was founded in the early 1980s in Alabama by the late Mother Angelica, a Franciscan sister. The network used to be known for daily mass and the rosary, plus the foundress's folksy chats, but in the 1990s, she and the station became more openly conservative in tone. Today, EWTN owns the Catholic Register newspaper, the Catholic News Agency News Service, and is affiliated with more than 500 radio stations around the world. For many people, EWTN is the face of American Catholicism. Raymond Arorio, the host of the weekly show The World Over, regularly interviews anti-Pope Francis guests, including former papal nuncio Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, who has called for Pope Francis's resignation. The show also features the, quote, papal posse of commentators that includes author Robert Royal and New York priest Father Gerald Murray, who together with Arroyo have little positive to say about this pope. And the EWTN News Nightly seems more like a shill for the Republican Party than a news program. Heidi, several years ago, you wrote a four-part investigative series about EWTN for the National Catholic Reporter. What did you find, and how does that help us to understand what the Pope is saying here in Slovakia? Thanks, Dan. Yes, the series that I did about EWTN for the National Catholic Reporter, I think, is probably one of the most revisited stories I've ever written. The idea back then was to let people know that in addition to having this history as this nice, folksy, pious television station that, you know, people's grandmas tuned into to watch the rosary or daily mass, that they had sort of taken this turn and become quite political, both in terms of church politics and in secular politics, and that there was this connection between the station and other conservative right-wing Catholic groups and their money. So the headline of the first story was From Piety to partisanship. And what I showed was how, including with some sort of softball interviews that they had done at the time with Trump as he was running for president, with Mike Pence, and eventually later with others in the Trump administration, that they really had become the Fox News of religious broadcasting. And then in the second part, I showed the connections to the conservative money in the church, including all kinds of people and organizations that if you're following along in uh, NCR that we frequently write about. So whether that's Tim Bush of the Napa Institute and whose name is also affiliated with the Catholic University of America with their business school, Frank Hanna, from, who's involved with the Legion of Christ Regnum Christi, and then also has his Solidarity Association, the Knights of Columbus, who the Catholic reporter had written about several times in the terms of their funding of many conservative causes, including against gay marriage. And a who's who of Catholic conservatism is who you'll, you'll see on EWTN. Now, they have the right to be whatever kind of television station or radio station or Catholic news service or newspaper that they want. 
but we thought it was important to just point out who they are, who they've become, and what some of these connections are. And it was news to a lot of folks. And so when the, the Pope made this comment in Slovakia, we're, and it was released via the transcript from that meeting with his fellow Jesuits, we were pretty sure, and, and clearly everyone else was pretty sure, that he was talking about EWTN. Yeah, it's so disturbing. I actually remember the more folksy period, you know, uh, in the 90s in particular when I was in high school. One of the things I appreciated about EWTN is that they would do what is much more commonplace in other networks today, which is live stream papal visits to North America or to South America. And so they could dedicate being a cable network, the resources to cover. I remember John Paul II in Mexico City and in Denver, World Youth Days, those kinds of things. And, and in, in a sense, it was very much a sort of Catholic-focused CNN. That's how it felt to me. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of perceptible bias in the commentary. But that all really began to change in the 2000s, as you note, Heidi, in your reporting and in the intro here as we talked about it. And, you know, I'm reminded of where it really seemed to take a turn. And this was sort of maybe laying the way for what it's become, especially under the Trump administration. But this was back when Pope Benedict XVI was Bishop of Rome before he re retired. And he, when he visited the United States, he celebrated Mass at Nationals Baseball Park. And the commentary, so, so the liturgies were organized by the Archdiocese of Washington. Cardinal Wuerl was the Archbishop at the time. And it was really a multicultural, very enculturated liturgy that reflected the different communities that make up the very diverse Archdiocese of Washington. And at the time, I was in graduate studies there. I was living in a friary in Silver Spring, which is a, at St. Camilla's Church, which is famously a very multicultural church and takes great pride in all the different communities there. And, and a number of the music ministers from St. Camillus were involved in the planning and the leading of the liturgical music at this huge national, international liturgy that featured the, uh, the Pope himself. I was at that Mass, actually, not far from Pope Benedict. They wanted these young religious right in the front row, I think, for the TVs. I, that's what I say, because we were sitting in the back like humble Franciscans, and some ushers pulled us up and brought us up front. That's, I'll never forget. That's the closest I've come to a sitting Pope. But the commentary became very racist, in fact, famously, where there was, I, I think it was the preparation of the gifts, there was, and I can't even remember which culture it, it, it was reflecting, but there was some music that Raymond Arroyo and his fellow commentators on EWTN found offensive because it wasn't in keeping with their sort of staid North American, old-fashioned, we might say, or traditionalist, quote-unquote, types of tunes. I don't know what they were expecting. I remember having been in that arena itself and celebrated the Eucharist in person there with this, you know, 20,000 people, it being a very moving, very spiritually enriching, very holy and sacred experience. And so when I found out about that after the fact, it became a, a kind of touchstone of where the EWTN ethos was going. I was very offended, and, and I am today. Well, and— Interestingly, I think the switch, the sort of the turn, which you observed there, like you said, in the 2000s, goes back uh, even another decade to another papal visit, which was when John Paul II was here for World Youth Day in Denver. And it was during, like you said, it was so nice that EWTN would do live streams of these events. And it was during coverage of that event that Mother Angelica got very upset when she saw during Stations of the Cross a female actor portraying Jesus. And she called it a abomination. And she said, I'm so tired of this liberal church in America. And it was shortly after that, that she changed her habit to a more, for her order that she had founded there, to a more traditional habit. And, and it was after that, that I think that really was a turn in EWTN's programming, culminating in what you saw to where we are today, where you know, we have Raymond Arroyo, Mother Angelica's biographer, and now the the host of this weekly news magazine show, who also is actually on Fox News as well. He's a regular commentator on the Laura Ingram show, where he's even more offensive. And, and so there really is this blurring of the church with the political on the station. David, do you have any experience with EWTN? Well, my main experience is anecdotal, and I don't have the, the closeness 
to the subject that you two have. I first became aware of EWTN many years before I became Catholic myself. I had a, a, a family that was friends of mine, and I went to school with their children, and they were in the process of moving from Episcopalianism to Catholicism, and a major component of that was their watching EWTN and seeing this much more conservative voice of Catholicism being presented. Listeners will recall this was in the wake of the Episcopal Church having the first openly gay bishop and other sorts of embraces of homosexuality at various points, and these were very conservative Episcopalians who didn't want any part of that, and so they fled—I'm using that term, that's my word, not yours—but they fled into the Catholic Church as a way of getting away from this kind of what they took to be a liberal turn in the Episcopal Church. But I I watched in real time as EWTN was sort of the foundation that they used to give them a vision of what the Catholicism they were entering was going to be all about. And so that's my experience. And that leads to some bigger questions of, you know, generations ago, we had local bishops who would give pronouncements about various things. Now we have bishops and other kind of religious figures, varying authority that go on television and speak with a much greater reach than ever before. And I'm just, we we talked about, you know, the kind of blending of political power and church power, but I'm also interested in the blending of church power and media power. Yeah. So not just on TV, but of course on social media as well. We have, you know, individuals or bishops who have quite a following in their kind of segments of the church, whether it's in progressive circles or in maybe alt-right circles. And I think we see what EWTN started happening on social media as well. I think it is it is dangerous, especially with the size of EWTN. So this is not just one television station among many Catholic television stations that are out there. There really are very few other examples of media reach that EWTN has. So, of course, famously, the bishops tried to start their own television station and were unsuccessful in it. And this is where Mother Angelica filled that void and went ahead and ro- and rose to build the huge uh, media organization that we have today. But the international reach of EWTN, both in Latin America, in Africa, even in Asia, is really sending a message to the rest of the world that this is what Catholicism is, that right wing equals Catholicism. And that message here at home isn't helping in terms of young people being attracted to the church. And I also think it's sending a misinformation message internationally. On the point of misinformation, I'm also aware of the fact that the other kind of arms of their their media empire are titled in such a way as to to kind of grift on more established and better known publications or services. So, you know, there are two NCRs. There's the one that you're the executive editor and vice president of called National Catholic Reporter, which is an independent newspaper that has done tremendous work and continues to do so and and is a trusted source. So much so that, you know, the secular media, when they need professional commentary or insight about what's going on in the Catholic Church, reach out to the reporting staff and the editors and and the columnists of NCR, National Catholic Reporter. They, EWTN, owns the National Catholic Register, you know. So for people who are not paying attention and they see that, they might think, oh, well, this is something along the lines of a National Catholic Reporter, but in fact, it's in many ways, it's not. And CNA, I think, tries to be a little bit more, I would say, fair and balanced than maybe EWTN's commentary and news or the National Catholic Register, though they're not often successful at that. And there's quite a history there, too. But I just point that out that they're known as CNA, not to be confused with Catholic News Service, CNS, which is a reliable, it's sponsored by the bishops, but it's an independent wire service. And so I can't help but think that's not accidental, right? That's meant to be misinforming and to get more eyes. Is that your take, Heidi? Yeah. Well, I will just point out that the National Catholic Register has a longer history than the reporters. So I think they were founded 
in the 20s, and we were founded in the 60s. Interestingly, though, that we've been an independent publication all along, and they've been owned by various folks throughout their history. Most recently, before they were with bought by EWTN, what they were owned by the Legionnaires of Christ. And also an interesting tidbit about the register is that when I did a story that I looked at a book that had interviewed all the bishops of the U.S. Several, a couple of years ago, it was the most widely read Catholic publication by the U.S. bishops, which I think is telling. Well, I'm sorry about that. I got that historical note wrong, but the confusion is there nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, yes, definitely. This raises a question that maybe our listeners will be interested in, because when we use words like independent, I think that it's important to think about that because, for example, my wife for a time was an editor at U.S. Catholic Magazine, which is owned by an order known as the Claritians. You mentioned the Legionnaires owning National Catholic Register at one point. We mentioned that National Catholic Reporter is independent in the sense that they're is no bishop to whom you are beholden. There is no order to whom you report. What about EWTN? Do they have any kind of Episcopal oversight? Are they under any kind of umbrella at all? That's a great question, David. And they actually changed their relationship to the church when it looked like there might be some threat of uh, a bishop visitation that might try to put the kibosh on some of the changes they were doing. So you know, it was associated with the order initially when Mother Angelica started it, but she transferred the ownership to a board, to a lay board, when there were some questions over some controversies and there was uh, a visitation of a bishop uh, by the bishops were was happening, prompted by the Vatican, I believe. So right now it is independent in that way too, and much in the same way where people might wonder where the funding from you know, for the National Catholic Reporter comes from, and you can see that all on our 990 because we're a nonprofit and we have subscriptions and we have advertising and we have donors. That's what I did was take a look at their financials to see who their donors were. And it was a very interesting reveal indeed in terms of the conservative names that you're seeing that have influence over a number of organizations in the U.S. church. I think it's also worth noting too, you know, we talked about, yeah, I also appreciate your question, David. You know, what is the exact nature of the religious community that Mother Angelica was instrumental in founding that led to this media enterprise and then empire. And they are Franciscan in name, but structurally it's important for folks to realize that this is a, a local congregation, right? This is something that is canonically tied to the Diocese of Birmingham, Alabama. It was founded there. Uh, Mother Angelica and company, you know, they are inspired by the Franciscan tradition, but they are not they're not to be confused with some of what I think people would recognize as the more established 800-year-old Franciscan communities like the one I belong to or the Capuchin Reform or the Conventuals or the Poor Clare Nuns who – the it's interesting that they're a – the women's community that Mother Angelica was a part of was a cloistered community. But they're not technically Poor Clares. There's It's complicated in that regard. So how they fit into the church – is interesting as well, and whose oversight they have. I know from being a part of the Franciscan community and a Franciscan scholar that this was a question for some of the leadership organizations in Rome that oversee religious life and the Franciscan communities in particular. And there was a kind of visitation some years ago of this community, and it was not a positive evaluation, especially the way that they form these young women who are inspired by watching Mother Angelica and, and the television programs and the young men that are part of this diocesan-based Franciscan congregation as well that, that kind of spun off of Mother Angelica's group. So they are Franciscan, but not in the way that I think a lot of people might imagine when they hear that. Yeah, some have argued that, I mean, her life and her rise is fascinating story. Some have argued that she most likely was one of the most powerful lay women in the U.S. church, given the founding of the order and of the media empire. Hey, it, it reminds me that I forgot to wish you a happy Feast of St. Francis today. We're recording <laughs> on you. Monday, St. Francis Day. That's right. We're recording today on our solemnity. Thank you very much. And a, and a belated, blessed Feast of St. Francis to all of our listeners. Well, and we're at time in this segment, and so we should probably leave it here. But it also bears repeating that there are media sources in the Catholic world that are trying to be responsible in terms of how they are presenting news about the church. And so in addition to National Catholic Reporter, which we've mentioned here, there's also, of course, Commonweal Magazine, another, another historically independent publication. 
We can also think of our friends in the Paulist Fathers and other sorts of organizations like that. So we're grateful for those that are trying to actually bring the good news to the world in a responsible way and not to present sort of a, a, a more biased approach to it. But, you know, as with everything, we encourage our listeners to be very sort of attentive to the ways in which you are getting your news about the church and your information about what is and is not Catholic in the world. And we're very grateful that you're listening to our show. This is The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here today with Father Dan Horan and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Later this year, in November, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops will hold their General Assembly in Baltimore, Maryland. Over the summer, St. Michael's Media, a far-right Catholic organization, also known as Church Militant, put in a request to the city to hold a protest of the event. The city of Baltimore has since denied the request, and St. Michael's Media has taken the city to court. According to the Associated Press, besides arguing that the city is violating its constitutional rights to free speech, assembly, and religion, attorneys for St. Michael's Media also wrote in court documents that the city of Baltimore is violating the Constitution's Establishment Clause by favoring, quote, mainstream Catholic doctrine over St. Michael's, end quote, more traditional view of church teaching. This appeal to constitutional rights reflects a larger shift in the legal landscape over the last 15 years, from a period of hostility to religion in the 1990s to a period where now religious practices can enjoy broad protections from otherwise general and neutral laws. David, you've been tracking these shifts in the law over the years. Fill us in on what might be going on here. Well, first of all, it's important for listeners to understand that there is not a clear-cut approach to religious liberty in United States history and in United States legal practice. We mentioned these constitutional clauses from the First Amendment. One is the Establishment Clause, that Congress will not establish a state religion, and the other is the Free Exercise Clause, which basically says that Congress will not pass laws that impede the practice of religion. Now, already listeners should hear that there's a natural conflict between these two, or at least a natural antagonism between these two ideas. And so a lot of court history, if we look at both the Supreme Court and other federal courts' decisions through the last 200 plus years of these being active questions, it's a history of trying to balance these two competing goals to not establish a state religion, but also not to impede the individual practice of religion. And that has ebbed and flowed in terms of its emphasis through the decades. A real landmark, as you mentioned, Heidi, was in the 1990s in the wake of a case called Employment Division v. Smith. That was where what had been a fairly nuanced balance between individual liberties and religious practice was overturned by, and it was Justice Scalia who wrote the the majority for that case, and it was overturned in favor of the government's, and the term at the time was neutral and generally applicable law. And so in the 1990s, if you had a general law that applied to everyone, and then you came and said, I would like a religious exemption to that law, you were not granted a religious exemption on the basis of the precedent of Employment Division v. Smith. And that led to a, a number of attempts to try and reinstate religious liberty at various levels. So we had at the federal level the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was struck down not once but twice by the Supreme Court with Sandra Day O'Connor writing the majority opinions in those. But you also had at a number of state levels religious freedom restoration acts being passed and those being constitutional. So, for example, Indiana and other states have varying uh, levels of robustness of religious freedom restoration acts attempting to push back against the regime that Smith and the Smith decision put in place. 
But you've also seen the Federalist Society, which has been pushing very conservative Supreme Court justices, both at the federal level and now very successfully at the Supreme Court level, trying to chip away at Employment Division versus Smith at the Supreme Court level. And so particularly for the last 15 years, you've seen a number of court cases that have swung the pendulum in the opposite direction. And so now, in particularly in the wake of several decisions in the last five years, we have the state of affairs where if you have a neutral and generally applicable law and it has any kind of exemption for any reason in a secular sense, the court has held that now it has to also have a religious exemption. So if you're getting a secular exemption to a general law, you have to also grant a religious exemption. This has played havoc with things like civil rights cases, and in particular cases having to do with gay marriage and protections of gay and lesbian persons, and it's increasingly being used against transgender persons. And so we have a really chaotic moment right now with the legal landscape. And so I, I don't want us to focus particularly on the church militant case, because that's just the tip of a much larger iceberg here, where various right-wing organizations are utilizing this swing in the pendulum to really push bigoted agendas or to try and push against more progressive agendas in the legal and in the civic landscape. Yeah, David, I think you bring up some really good points from the 30,000 foot view, right? We look at how encompassing this is and how, you know, how it affects a lot of different circumstances and entities. I, I do want to zoom in for a minute, though, not lose sight of church militant as a case study. And, and in particular, because of Two things, really. One is that it is a recognized hate group. <laughs> the Southern Poverty Law Center um, has identified it for a number of reasons, um, many of which align with some of the agendas that you described here and how the case law has been deployed or at least been argued in support of some of these discriminatory positions and institutions. But I, I think that's an important thing for listeners to realize. You know, they got in trouble from the local diocese for identifying themselves early on as being a Catholic organization, they still present themselves as sort of the ultra-Orthodox interpretation. But the second point I wanted to raise was, in addition to there being a, a recognized hate organization, and that's it's worth noting, you know, like along the same lines as neo-Nazi groups and white supremacist groups and the like, it's important to realize that they've tipped their cards in a way, which is they present themselves in their messaging and on their websites and video streams and so forth as the gatekeepers and protectors of authentic Roman Catholicism, of which they most certainly are not. But in the filings, the legal filings here, they're claiming by basing their case on religious discrimination that they are in fact something other than what the USCCB, which is the the Episcopal body that oversees communion of the actual Roman Catholic Church and communion with Rome and the Pope, they're claiming to be something other than that by definition. And so to me, I'm like, anyone who identifies is Catholic, who, even if the hate group designation does not turn you away, but being really Catholic is important to you, have nothing to do with this group. They themselves admitted in court that they are not Catholic. This is such a great point, and this is one of the kind of hinge points that often gets misunderstood when we're hearing about these kind of cases. Because of that First Amendment tension that I mentioned earlier, the federal government cannot actually define what is and is not a religion. And so you'll watch if you pay attention to the Supreme Court, they will tread very carefully in questions of who is the legitimate authority to say whether or not this is Catholic. And yet, because of some of the precedents that have come in the last five years, it has become much easier for organizations like Church Militant slash St. Michael's Media to make this kind of claim to say, our religious speech is being impinged upon. And, and this has to do with a, a longer history coming out of that Employment Division versus Smith case. In the wake of Employment Division versus Smith, the only way that religious liberties cases were decided positively in favor of religious practice no longer were in terms of religious actions. It became rather under the free speech clause of the First Amendment. So religious speech has gained a great deal more power over the last 15 years, particularly as a way of trying to stake a claim in the public sphere for religious practice. So even though 
you're exactly right that in in the filing, St. Michael's Media is admitting that they are not part of the establishment of Catholicism and that they're an, an insurgent against the establishment of Catholicism. They're exploiting this opening that has come with regard to religious speech in the case law that allows them to move forward successfully. Well, and that's kind of what I'm getting at. I mean, that's the interesting thing, right? So, I mean, Heidi knows better than you and I do about how reporters, you know, you discovery in court filings is really very interesting because sometimes they show their true colors unwittingly, either in deposition or in this case, the, the filing itself. And so by making the claim that they are, that they're being discriminated against on religious grounds, they're admitting, in effect, at least for legal reasons, that they're not part of this institution, because otherwise they'd be under the authority of the said bishop. So I I think that's interesting. And it reminds me of uh, another thing that's going on in our society right now around who gets to determine what Catholicism is or is not in authenticity. And that has to do with the the bogus claims to religious exemption around vaccinations. And I have to say, I I almost always cringe and I'm uncomfortable when watching Saturday Night Live and they make a reference to the Catholic Church because it's oftentimes torrid and and distasteful. And this one, this past weekend on Weekend Update, there was a very clever joke that I, I, I have to admit was well thought out, even if you know, not always something that's super comfortable, but they they made a note that, you know, headlines across the U.S., there were some Catholics who are wanting to claim religious exemptions for uh, the vaccinations. And the punch, that was the setup, and the punchline of the joke as it was delivered was, well, that makes sense because nobody's more comfortable with other people dying for their sins than Catholics. So bad joke on the one hand, but again, you know, it points to this idea. You can make a joke about this and it's news because people are claiming they are the authority of this religion for which they are not, you know, and the bishops and the Holy Father himself and the CDF have made clear there is no religious exemption for Catholics with vaccines. And when it comes to this argument on the part of this hate group, they're claiming to be more Catholic than the bishops or the church itself, which is insane. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, both of our segments deal with media that are claiming to be, you know, the true arbiters of the faith rather than the official church being that. Certainly, I can relate to not being an official part of the church. As we mentioned before, the National Catholic Reporter is independent, and the Bishop of uh, Kansas City has tried before to tell us we have to remove Catholic from our name. We do not pretend to be more Catholic than the Pope or more Catholic than the bishops in the way these two groups have been or are trying to be, EWTN and St. Michael's Media slash Church Militant. I do think the journalist in me does want to be careful about the First Amendment right to free speech and free assembly. So aside from the this growth, as you pointed out, David, in the religious freedom claims, because in general, I would be for supporting that. I mean, obviously, we want to make sure that even distasteful views are able to be expressed in a free democracy like ours. Now, what the city of Baltimore is arguing, and I believe as we record here on Monday, they're still in court about this. They met on Friday, but no decision came yet. They're arguing about the threat of violence. And so, you know, they're claiming to have this large gathering outside the hotel in this tented area that is between kind of the bay there and the the hotel where the bishop's meeting is. And among their guests that they're advertising are people like Steve Bannon and Milo Yiannopoulos, who have expressed support for the January 6th protest at the Capitol, and who have indicated that there could be the potential for violence. And I think in a post-January 6th country, cities have a right to be concerned about the potential for violence at some of these events, even as I encourage them to err on the side of free speech. Now, I will just add my own personal experience that Church Militant held a similar event in 2018 outside the bishops' meeting. This was the one that got a lot of news attention because of the uh, McCarrick revelations that had come out that year. And I remember sitting in my room, I was typing up uh, an article based on what had just happened in the meeting. And I looked out my window down at this large tented area. 
And what was supposed to attract thousands of people had maybe 200 people at it maximum. And so I didn't even go down there to check out what was going on because it really didn't amount to much after all. So I hear the concerns about violence, but I also, you know, of course, I'm a big advocate of the First Amendments for free speech. Well, and we should mention as well that no one is curtailing the speech of St. Michael's Media. They continue to be able to put out their programming unimpeded. It's just a matter of whether or not they can bring that to a public space. And, you know, this is, again, the kind of thing where I'm completely in agreement with you, Heidi, that it's important to have protest speech. It's important to be able to have dissenting speech, but there's also the balance of public safety. And since we have this kind of precedent already of right-wing organizations being tied to very militant and even paramilitary activities in the last two years, we want to make sure, and I think the city of Baltimore has a legitimate claim to try and make sure that the people of Baltimore are safe around this. Yeah, and I think that's important for us to remember, too. I mean, per your kind of summary, David, of the legal precedent, you know, free speech does not get – people do not have the right to cause harm or to incite violence. That is not protected speech in the United States according to the Constitution. Furthermore, municipalities for the purposes of safety especially have the right to – decide where and when that speech can take place. And that's really at the heart of this. You know, for public safety reasons, the the officials in Baltimore are saying, no, this isn't going to work based on what you're proposing. So I, I think that's important to recognize, too. Some municipalities will have, you know, surcharges or something that say like, OK, St. Mi- Michael's Media, if there's this reasonable threat of violence, which there seems to be, then you're going to have to pay such amount of money for the extra police force or security or, you know, or whatever. But it seems to me that the authorities in Baltimore have determined that actually that's not even sufficient. And to Heidi's point, after January 6th of this year, I don't blame them. I mean, it's not worth the risk. You know, people have died in, for, because of these kinds of things. Well, and this is where the last 15 years, and particularly the last five years, make this a really fascinating case to watch because you would think that public safety and the common good would lead to neutral and generally applicable sorts of restrictions on certain types of gathering, certain types of speech, it will be fascinating to see if the federal and maybe even the Supreme Courts side instead with this precedent of an exemption to neutral and generally applicable law when it is a religious case. Because again, right now, the the state of affairs at the federal and at the highest levels of the court is that if you are a religious practitioner of any particularly conservative stripe, your claim that you have a, a legitimate right to a certain type of of religious speech is like a get out of jail free card for all of these kinds of restrictions. It's it's not as possible if you are coming from a more progressive understanding of the faith, and particularly if you're not coming from Christianity, to make this same kind of claim, at least at the court levels yet. And so because we're dealing with a far-right group, it'll be interesting to see how the courts interpret their right to be exempt from what would otherwise be very general restrictions and protections for the common good. Yeah. And so whenever that happens, then those groups paint themselves as these victims, as I'm sure if if the courts allow this restriction on St. Michael's Media to stand, they'll get plenty of publicity among their supporters out of the fact that they're victims of this, you know, quote unquote, crackdown. So you're right in pointing out that that difference, David. David, how do you think it's going to turn out? What's your money on? So if this was 15 years ago, I would say that St. Michael's Media would not be able to bring a case forward successfully. I will say probably that given the regime as it currently stands, I would put even or better money on the idea that St. Michael's Media is going to be allowed to proceed and that Baltimore is going to have to step back from its position. Follow NCR online. Brian Fraga, our national correspondent, is following the story. He'll report whatever turns out. And certainly as this continues to unfold, we'll come back and talk about it, I'm sure. We're going to take a break right now. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Many of the themes we address on this podcast are challenging, urgent, and at times controversial. Many of the issues involve serious topics and matters that require research and deliberation in order for us to match the importance of the subject at hand. We know that our regular listeners appreciate this and look forward to these dynamic discussions every other week. That said, we know that our listeners also appreciate and that we enjoy when we get a little less serious from time to time and share about what we're watching or reading apart from our day jobs. Every now and then on The Francis Effect, we co-hosts like to step back and reflect on what we've been watching, reading, and doing in terms of engaging with the popular culture. So, Dan, let's start with you. What have you been taking in lately from among the many TV shows, movies, books, and other options in popular culture today? David, I'm glad you asked. I had no idea this question was coming, and I'm not at all prepared. False. So this is, I think, YouTube might agree. I know this is a kind of a common, and speaking of putting popular in popular culture or pop culture, is, is that we're really living through sort of a TV renaissance, thanks to all the streaming services and the, the money that's going into these kind of premiere channels. You know, you have the old staples like HBO and, and, and Showtime, I think maybe to a slightly lesser degree, that have been doing great programming for a long time. But with Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Plus and, and Apple TV, I mean, it's just, there's so much out there. And so I have found myself lately, as I have really since at least the beginning of the pandemic, drawn to a lot of this great TV programming. But I want to say something about the fact that I think I'm going to put out a hot take here that, that you know, cinema's in decline, at least popular cinema. And we, the three of us might have different takes on this, but I think as a rule, there's fewer and fewer movies that are coming out feature length films that are not direct to streaming that I'm interested in seeing. You know, it's actually, I've noticed that in thinking about this segment today. Case in point, I, I watched, I, we mentioned at the outset that I was in Hawaii giving that lecture at Chaminade. Now, that's a long flight from Chicago to Honolulu, about nine hours. And so I ended up watching the Christopher Nolan movie Tenet, which is his most recent that came out. And I won't spoil it for anybody, but I remember wanting to see and didn't get a chance to. So I watched it. And when you're on a nine hour flight, you have plenty of time to watch an almost three hour movie. And, and I really liked it, but I'm a huge Christopher Nolan fan, famously among my friends. Anyways, my favorite movie is Inception. I love that film and I can watch it over and over again. But I was kind of on a Christopher Nolan kick when I was on the plane. So I watched Tenet and I wanted some more. And so I went back and watched the Nolan Batman trilogy. Batman Begins and, oh gosh, everything, you know, seeing Heath Ledger as Joker. It was all just so extraordinary. But other than that, I'm not really drawn to much, many movies that are coming out these days. But let me tell you just a quick rundown of, of the shows that I'm watching and loving and engaging these days. Readers of my column will not be surprised that I'm head over heels in love with the show Ted Lasso. It's in it's coming to the end of its second season. I watched the most recent episode last night as it happened after I got back from my travels on the East Coast. Another show from Apple TV that I really enjoy. I'm a big fan of the actor Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And he is starring in a show that he is has written and, and directed, and that is a show called Mr. Corman. It's funny, I, Apple TV lists it as a comedy, but it's actually, there are comedic and, and elements and, and moments of levity, but truth be told, it's really a drama, and it's really a great reflection on mental health today and what it's like to be somebody in their early middle age, like late 30s, early 40s, in... Yeah, just today. And so the pandemic plays a role in this as well. It's, it's really fascinating. There's an interesting backstory to that show, too. I watched the, the White Lotus by totally by accident on HBO. I stumbled upon it without hearing anything about it and got drawn in very quickly. We could talk about that if people have seen that. The Netflix series that was originally a Spanish TV show in English, it's presented as Money Heist, which is a global phenomenon. In Spanish, the original title of the program is produced in, in Spain is called uh, House of Paper. It's a really great show. If you like capers and thrillers and this kind of stuff, it's really extraordinary. So that's that's what I've been watching. What are you two up to? Well, Dan, it's interesting. We have no overlap, although Ted Lasso is on my list because pretty much everybody who I speak to tells me I have to watch that show. I don't have Apple TV, so we'll have to sign up for the 
the uh, trial. It's the cheapest streaming service. I'm not paid by <laughs> Apple TV, but they can get expensive. I think it's like $4.99 or something. I, so it's, I will it's have affordable. to agree with you about the feature length film thing. I mean, I think my husband and I got away from watching movies when our kids were young because we literally did not have two full hours to watch TV together by the time we got our difficult to get to bed kids to bed. <laughs> we were up for maybe a half an hour or an hour show, if that. So I did go back to the movie theater with my kids to see Into the Heights over the summer, and I did enjoy that. But I don't watch a lot of movies. So here's what I'm watching with no overlap with Dan. So my, <laughs> I guess, different tastes. <laughs> my husband and I started watching uh, Only Murders in the Building. I just started it uh, yes, uh, okay. yesterday, actually, so as I have, was traveling with Steve Martin. I'm and, a huge yeah, Steve I'll... Martin fan. And it's so quirky, and I really love it. It's about podcasts, right? <laughs> so, and the the one I we are I forget which episode we're on seven or something. The one we watched this weekend was nearly silent. Like they have a deaf character, and so there's a lot of signing, and there were a lot of other things going on. It was fascinating. Some of the quirky things they do, and I, I, it's funny in a way. I also watch a lot of documentaries, and I was drawn to the one about Lularoe clothing because I am a fan of. LuLaRoe leggings. I don't buy them at these mid-level marketing parties. I'm a thrift shopper, so I buy them at the thrift store. But it was a fascinating look at this company that really is a pyramid scheme, but with its connections to the Church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church, because the founders are Mormons, was really fascinating to me and, and sad about how a number of folks got caught up in, in that. The other documentary, the Muhammad Ali documentary that's on PBS, uh, the Ken Burns. I've watched the first one, need to catch up on the, I think they're calling them round one, round two. Just really interesting to look at his life and the role of religion in his life as well. I'm a big PBS fan. And last night was the, the beginning of the new season of Grandchester, which I've written before about my love of sort of murder mystery British uh, television. And I love Grandchester. And last night's w was a great opening. And it looks like the storyline about the, the gay curate is going to be uh, continuing in this season, very interestingly. And then last but not least, I couldn't watch it over the pandemic because I think I was just sort of stuck in my own sadness about so much. And it can be a hard show to watch, but I'm a real fan of This Is Us about the you know family dynamics, especially uh, with issues around adoption and birth families. And so I'm catching up on the last season of that as well. So maybe we did have some overlap. Dan, how about you, David, do we have any overlap? Very little, but that's because my wife, Kira, and I really, at the end of the summer, just burned out on politics. I mean, we're both political junkies, and a lot of our a lot of our kind of mornings are spent, particularly on the weekends, catching up with political podcasts and, and news podcasts. But we just both reached a point where we burned out on that, and we had discovered this podcast by Jenna Fisher and Angela Martin called The Office Ladies, and they were both on the American version of The Office. And so we, we stopped listening to all of our political podcasts and began exclusively listening to these re rehash behind-the-scenes takes. And what they're doing is they're basically going episode by episode and talking to the producers and the writers and some of the other actors and from their own experiences, kind of what was going on in the creation of each of these episodes. The Office is an important part of our own kind of personal mythology here in the Dalt household. And so as a result of that, we went back and Kira and I began rewatching The Office from the first season onwards, and now we're in season six. But then we also started showing it to our kids because we had figured out that it, it, they're of an age now where they can get the humor and we can explain some of the parts that are a little bit more dicey. And so we're working through that with them as well. So that's been a major focus for the past couple of months in our household. We're also big fans of the Marvel Universe, and so the kids and Kira and I have been working through the most recent chapter series in the Marvel Universe called What If, which is an alternate reality show where they take the storylines that are by now well-known if you've watched the movies and if you've kept up with the other properties. And What If is is looking at those well-known storylines and then saying, at this particular point, what would happen if, if a different choice was made? How would it change the outcomes of the story? And what's really interesting to me about this is because we're so invested in the wider mythology of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, 
it's really interesting to watch how they are taking elements that we know well from these stories and they're weaving them now into a completely different plot line and a completely different trajectory. We had thought at first that kind of like the Twilight Zone, these were going to be disconnected narratives. But what we're finding through these nine chapters of this particular series is that they're all building up to a conclusion. And it's, it's a conclusion that's not just going to be contained within the series, but it, it looks like it's going to have ramifications for the wider Marvel Universe, which to me as a person who's a professional storyteller and who thinks a lot about the kind of power of narrative and what we call the Rashomon effect when you revisit narratives again and again, just from a theoretical standpoint, I find it really fascinating. But it's also fascinating to me to watch the kids really enjoy these and to begin to get how the bigger connections are being made. So we're not watching very much in the household, but what we're watching, we're watching very deeply. Yeah, so there there were some overlaps. I mean, the list goes on. Maybe I'm revealing I watch too much TV. I don't know. But I think part of that is it increases when traveling increases. That's when I get most of it done. But I did watch the LuLaRoe documentary, the four-part one. Fascinating. I knew a little bit about that only because of the litigation that is featured toward the end. But there's also things, and I agree with one commentator who made this point about that series, which is they brushed over some very interesting things like the fact in the first episode or the first installment of the documentary that that two of the kids married them they married each other a brother and sister or stepbrother and sister they just never addressed that again they just mentioned that and move on so it's a wild ride i'll say that much and deeply saddening those mlms are very sad um but something you mentioned heidi i did start watching that show about the podcast only murders in this uh, building and i only've seen one episode and it's delightful and quirky as you say but when you mentioned one involving a deaf character it reminded me of one movie i did see recently and again this is something on apple tv so you know not many people may have seen it yet but it's this delightful and wonderful movie called coda and it centers a deaf family who are uh, a family of fishermen on on up in new england and the cast is actually deaf so it's well represented and they have one hearing daughter and it's a just you know get ready to cry in the best way it's not a sad movie it's just a, a very moving film so i recommend that i've been thinking about the marvel universe david i'm, I'm marvel curious i've seen a couple of these films one at a time but i'm just like it's so expansive now so one of the films that was on the plane was black widow is that it with is that part of the marvel universe too and and i'm like I, I watched the trailer and I thought, is this something I'm going to want to watch? But then I'm like, I don't know how it fits in because it's like the backstory of something. And so maybe one of these days you'll have to sit me down and give me, okay, this and then this, because I don't even really know how to get into it. Um, but I did want to give a shout out, not just to, to the visual arts, but to two books that I've read in recent months. I'm not a big consumer of fiction. You know, and part of that is just a, a professional hazard. I read a, for a living and write for a living. And so I read a lot of nonfiction. But every now and then there's some really great books. We were privileged to have speak here last week at St. Mary's College, the author Jacqueline Woodson, who is extraordinary, a, a National Book Award winner. She's won awards for and is written across genres. So for children, as well as for middle age and for adults. And she has this really uh, powerful novel called Red at the Bone that, that I highly recommend. It's not very long. It's just, well, it's just extraordinarily well done. And another book that I really enjoyed and just absolutely captivated me was Midnight Library, which some of you may have read and listeners may have read by Matt Haig. I, I don't want to spoil it. I mean, it's it basically involves the afterlife and our living lives and what the meaning of life is. And it is just so clever. As soon as I got into about like page five, I'm like, this has got to be made into a movie. And somebody told me, a friend of mine who had recommended the book said, oh yeah, that's it's already in production or something. Thing. But read it before it comes out on film. It's so good. Yeah. In the other media category, I'll also just say having kids took me out of the popular music scene for a while because I just only so much room in the brain and no chance to go to concerts. But I did at the end of the summer go see some live music outdoors, which was just so lovely to be able to do again after so many years of not being able to do it either because of kids or because of COVID. So a friend and I went to see Counting Crows, and I had seen them when they first became a band. They played at the Old St. Pat's Block Party here in Chicago, which was this big young adult 
ministry event sponsored by the parish in downtown. And I had seen them right when their uh, first album came out. And so it was fun to go see them again. We're all much more middle-aged, including uh, the band, than we were back then some 15, 20 years ago. But David, I'm what I'm encouraged to hear is that you're still watching shows with your kids. My kids are not that interested at almost 13 and almost 14 now in watching TV with mom and dad. I have been watching sort of slowly the Harry Potter movies with my daughter who's reading the books, but that's great that you guys share that. And I need a tutorial on the Marvel Universe too, because my son tells me, you know, I I can't even just start because I won't understand it because it's so complex. So Well, I will be happy to uh, walk both of you through the connections that I see in the Marvel Universe. And I do absolutely count it as a blessing that the kids still want to sit down with Kira and I and watch these things. And we know that might not be the case forever, but for right now, it's a really fun thing. And those of you that are listening at home, we're interested in what you're paying attention to and watching as well. So, you know, our Twitter is FrancisFXPod, and we're also on Facebook, and, and you can write to us through email. We'd love to hear from you about what you're watching and catching up with. And if you have a chance, if you're listening to this on Wednesday the 6th, please do stop by the Commonweal and burn it in center event that we're going to be at this evening. But if we don't catch you tonight, we'll look forward to catching you in a couple of weeks when we're back. Heidi, Dan, thank you so much for the conversation today. It's great to see you. And for listeners, please know that you're in our prayers, and we're so grateful that you're along for this ride with us. This has been The Francis Effect, and you'll hear from us soon. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.